From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. You're here because you committed a crime. You broke a law that society saw fit to enact for its own protection. Ignacio Cuevas, death row number 526. I pretty much felt that uh, my life was over. All I knew was that I needed to do something. I found a couple of guys and I formed a group. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio cells we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. The warden called me and he says, Quavis is scheduled for next Tuesday. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I said, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to pull the trick. I'm not going to do it. He said, yes, you are. We just couldn't believe. Here we were behind a 30-foot wall, listening to ourselves on a radio station in the free world. The Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville has a long and storied history. It was the only prison in the 11 Confederate states still standing at the end of the Civil War. It was the site of one of the longest hostage-taking sieges in the U.S. in the 70s. And, on a lighter note, it was the site of the Texas prison rodeo for over 50 years, beginning in the 30s. Now, its claim to fame is housing the busiest execution chamber in the country. Today on ReSound, we have two remarkable, though very different stories that center around the state pen in Huntsville. Both are about soul, the kind you dance to and the kind you pray for. Stay tuned. The same Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville that was the home of the prison rodeo in the 30s and recording studios in the 70s is currently the home of the busiest death chamber in the country. Recently, the state executed its 500th prisoner at Huntsville. For a number of years, there was a man there who you could say was on death row, but not as a prisoner. Producer Matt Holtzman introduces him to us in his story, Ministry of Presence. You might call Carol Pickett a speak-softly-but-carry-a-big-Bible kind of guy. He was chaplain of the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, for 15 years. The Walls Unit, that's what they call the prison, is the place where they execute people in Texas. And between 1982 and 1995, Pickett ministered to 95 men who were put to death there. After each one, sometime after midnight, after the witnesses had left the death chamber and the dead man's body had been carted away, Pickett would go to his house across the street, sit down, turn on his little tape recorder, and start talking. Jesse Della Rosa, death row number 713. And about 11.10, Jesse made a very unique request. He said, I would like for you to have a song played for me. This will be my last request. There's a radio station in Houston, KFMK 98 on the dial, which accepts requests. I told him that I didn't know that I could do this. But I asked him what the song was. He said, well, it's a 1972 song by the Dramatics called In the Rain. I said, Jesse, how do you know that song? That's 13 years ago. You were just a little kid. He said, that's my, one of my favorite songs. I've remembered it ever since. And he asked me, please, he said, please, can you, can you 
get somebody to play that song. So I called the switchboard and asked the woman on duty if she would go in and get Manuela, his sister, to come out and talk on the phone. And she got on the outside phone, and I explained to her what was going on. I told her to be sure and tell the radio station they better get on the stick and do it in a hurry. Manuela seemed to be quite shaken by this. She called back at 20 minutes to 12 and stated that she was having trouble getting through to the radio station because the line was busy. I never heard from her again, but as we watched the clock, as time got closer, we were trying to see if maybe the last wish of this man was fulfilled. At 11.53, I heard the fellow on the radio say, Now I want to dedicate this to Jesse. It's an old song. This is for you, Jesse. And the two guards who knew about this with me helped keep everybody away from the cell and away from the radio and quiet. Where for the next three minutes, this man listened very intently to this particular song. I never knew why it was important to him. I will never know. He smiled and said, thank you. The one minute after 12, I said, Jesse, it's time to go. We went inside. Jesse was cooperative. He lay down. His veins were good. The saline solution was flowing in both arms. The warden stepped out, and I was in the room with Jesse. And he said to me, will you hold my hand? I held his hand. The warden ordered it to begin. The flow was started at 12.13 a.m. And less than 10 seconds later, there was no more breath and no more movement. Carol Pickett had only been to the Walls unit once before he took the job as chaplain in 1980. It was six years earlier. He was the minister of a big Presbyterian church across town, and he got an emergency call from one of his parishioners, the prison warden. In the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, armed convicts have seized 11 hostages. The hostages include several prison system school teachers and librarians. Two of the hostages were also Pickett's parishioners. They both worked at the prison. And so he spent 11 intense days there with their families and the families of other hostages. They waited, they worried, and prayed. Carrasco later let the hostages telephone their families. Children? Yes. <laughs> I love y'all. Mother, we love you too. Don't worry, we're going to get you back. The children of Julia Stanley and Elizabeth Beseda did not get their mothers back. A hail of gunfire ended the siege in a pool of blood. Only one of the three hostage takers survived the massacre, a prisoner named Ignacio Cuevas. When Pickett left the Walls unit after the ordeal, he never thought he'd step foot on the grounds again. But years later, the head of the Texas prison system asked him to be chaplain at the Walls unit, and Pickett accepted. At the time, he didn't know that Texas was getting ready to put the death house back in action after an 18-year hiatus. My name is 
You want my real name? My real name is Carol L. Pickett. The first day that I ever found out we were going to have an execution, I had been there at the prison for two years already. I had 2,200 inmates on my unit, and I considered it a, a great ministry. We started a lot of music programs, so I had a lot of that going on. About the middle part of November, the warden called a staff meeting. And then he said, gentlemen, we're going to have an execution December the 7th. None of us have been a part of an execution before, and lethal injection has never been done in the world, so we're all flying blind. But he went around to every person in that room and assigned them responsibilities. And he looked at me and he said, you will be there from the time the inmate gets there until the time the man dies. He was to become, quote, mine when he reached the unit, and I was to be there all the time to handle all of his requests and needs and to communicate back and forth between the warden and other people involved. And he said, your main responsibility is to seduce his emotions so he won't fight. A couple of days later, we went through the walkthrough with nobody there. This first trip to the death house was one of the most upsetting and to a certain extent terrifying experience that I'd had in the 30 years since I began preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I walked the long hall with the other men down to the death house. The door was unlocked there, a very heavy, squeaking door. In cell number one, there was a Bible, a set of checkers, and a checkerboard. At the far end, really to the right as you enter, there's a gray door, a heavy door that is locked. When that door is open, you immediately see a hospital-type gurney. A volunteer that uh, was a big, strong man came in, and then uh, five guards would put on nine straps. Then the guard, the warden would check them all to be sure they're tight, okay? And then we'd go back and do it again. Then we'd go back and do it again. The volunteer, he began to fight, and he kicked and he kicked, and it took a long time to wrestle that man down. But there was bloodshed. I really wondered how do I get out of this responsibility? How do I feel about the whole issue of capital punishment? Oh yes, I had argued for it, but it was different then because then I was a minister of a church in which two women had been killed, had been murdered, and I was very much in favor of it. But now I was to watch it, and I was to learn to know the man, and to be with him as a chaplain. For several weeks, I began to pray for strength to do what needs to be done, and this is what God wanted me to do. The issue was finally resolved. I decided to look at this as an individual who was going to die, period. The manner and method of death was not important. I could not judge him or be critical of him, and I determined not to be overly concerned about what brought him to the place of his death. Charlie Brooks would be the first man ever to be executed by lethal injection. Almost six years earlier, Brooks had taken a car mechanic to a motel room, tied him up with coat hangers, gagged him with adhesive tape, and shot him in the head. 
The authorities brought Brooks to the death house early in the morning to avoid the crowd that would build up outside the prison later on in the day. He was to be put to death at midnight. December the 6th. I didn't sleep December the 4th and 5th. I arrived at the unit at 6 a.m. I didn't know Charlie Brooks. And he walked in, you know, and he walked straight up to me, and he called me by name, which shocked me. The guards came and took his shackles off and his chains off and his handcuffs off and stripped him of all of his clothes. And he was just a little man. They stripped him, and then they did a search, you know, searched every cavity. Boy, they were thorough. And then he walked over to the cell. He did ask that we take his Dr. Peppers out that he'd been saving, and we put them in our refrigerator and offered them to be cold when he needed them. I thought there would be anger, nervousness, anxiety, but he was just patient and kind and gentle, and he was not afraid to talk to a Christian chaplain. You know, he was a Muslim. We talked, and we talked, and we talked. The time came. I went to the cell. Told Charlie it was time to go. And we stepped out. Charlie Brooks behind me. He walked straight inside. They strapped him down. And he didn't say a word. He was lying there on the table, just waiting. And Warden Percy said, We are ready. At 12.09, the first injection of lethal medication began flowing to the arms of Charlie Brooks, Jr. He was very, very still. I watched his eyes. There seemed to be moisture there, but it never reached his cheeks. He had agreed that as soon as he felt the effects of this injection, that death was coming, he was going to say, the words of admission to paradise. Allah U Akbar, which means Allah the Most Great. He opened his mouth and a sound came from his lips. Al. He never got the word out. And as he ended with what appeared to be the second syllable of the word, his lips went shut. He never moved again. I got home uh, after 5 o'clock in the morning. I did not go to sleep. I did not go to sleep. I replayed it and replayed it and replayed it in my head. You know, I went back as a, being a minister of concern for a human being, not being on the judgment committee, not being on the jury, not having anything to do with sentencing him to death, did I do my ministry. I got out my old tape recorder and sat on the floor, and I just started talking. Charlie Brooks, the first person I ever saw executed, died calmly, peacefully, talking to Allah. I felt his pulse just stop, just stop, and uh, mine did too. Mine did every time. 
because you never know what's going to happen. Never. He began walking up, up and down in his cell, striking his left hand with his right hand, right fist and the left hand, right fist and the left hand. He began to sing his first song. He sang a solo entitled, Lord, It's Gonna Rain. And the man had a great voice, one of the best singing voices of anybody that I'd ever heard. And he burst loose with this great voice and sang, where it went up and down the the seven cells and his entire body trembled and quaked and moved from the top of his head to his feet. The eight very strong leather straps began to move. John was scared. The family began hysterically to curse. We were called dirty names, murderers. A body was removed. The place was cleaned up. And preparations were made for the coming of the second one for that night. We talked about his religion, which was a type of voodoo, Buddhist, Islamic, Hare Krishna, all rolled into one. You see, there are many people who believe that the soul leaves the body through the soft spot in the skull. He said, some of us believe that when the eyes roll back in the head, that's a sign that the eyes are watching the soul leave. And I want you to watch and see if you can see my soul, if I have a soul. And I want you to see where it comes out. This form was handed to him through the bars. With no problem whatsoever, he took my pen and signed it with his right hand. The same right hand that the lawyers had argued earlier that day before a federal judge that was paralyzed and unable to do anything. And ate his vanilla ice cream as I was discussing the procedure of the insertion of the needles and so forth. And, and so after that, he began to want to go to sleep. He felt like he shouldn't go to sleep because as he said, one of these minutes I may wake up and then I'll be sleeping a long time. One of the questions that he asked was, was it true that Montoya's stomach exploded and the organs came out? I don't know where he got that idea, but certainly that was not true. It said that he ate six scrambled eggs with cheese, which was true. That he had seven pieces of butter toast. He only ate five. The papers stated that he ate 15 pieces of bacon. Actually, he only ate two pieces of sausage. The papers said he ate a bowl of white grits with butter. They were yellow grits. The papers stated that he ate three hash browns. Actually, he was sent one full dinner plate of hash browns. The newsman reported that he drank orange juice, but it was grape juice. So out of the six items they reported, they got five of them completely wrong. But that was normal, and that had been going on forever, as long as I've been working there. You can read anything on a paper, a newspaper, about a person's crime and what they've done and everything else, but when you get to to meet them at 6 o'clock in the morning and then you're going to be there till midnight and you get to know their families, you get to know more about their life and uh, basically to listen. And I call it the ministry of presence. Even early on, Carol Pickett had begun to question the death penalty, but he continued to believe in his calling as minister to those who were going to be put to death. 
Even that belief was tested in 1991, when the man who'd killed two of Pickett's parishioners in the 1974 Huntsville prison siege came back to the scene of his crime. This time, he was in shackles. Ignacio Cuevas, death row number 526, May the 22nd and May the 23rd, 1991. How in the world could a man be a minister to a woman like Judy Stanley who was blown apart with five bullet holes in the back, be with her family during all the problems, conduct a funeral service, and then 17 years later be asked to be the minister to the man who was convicted of killing her. The warden called me and he says, Quavis is scheduled for next Tuesday. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I said, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to pull the trick. I'm not going to do it. He said, yes, you are. When I first saw Quavis come into the door, I was surprised at his size. For all the pictures and ugly memories, this was not a man that looked like he had been depicted. He looked at me and nodded in my direction as if he knew who I was. And since this had occurred many times before, I accepted it as something routine. I knew that I was going to have to, to guard very carefully against seeing or hearing or feeling things that were not there. Ignacio Cuevas was number 39. And number 33 was Carlos de Luna who was, I am totally convinced he was innocent. And it's two years later, uh, 1991, by that time I had reached the point where the death penalty was, was wrong. He talked about a passage when Jesus talks about when people should be caring for others. And when we should, all people should be pastors to people in need. You are a pastor to me because you came to me in prison. The Lord Jesus Christ also said that we're supposed to welcome strangers and take care of those people that we do not know. He said, I was a stranger to you. You never knew me. Said, the Lord Jesus Christ said that we are to bring water to those who are thirsty. And he said, you have been bringing coffee to me all day long. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ says I was naked and you gave me clothes. You have given me clothes to die in. You have been my pastor. I asked him, did he want to pray? And he said his prayers were finished, and he had nothing left to say. That God understood, but he had confessed every day, and that he was ready to go to a better place. If Ignacio Doquavis were coming up for execution now, I would not support killing him, because I heard it from the victim's families. The death of Ignacio Cuevas accomplished nothing, nothing. And so much of the executions as, as accomplishing nothing for either family. So we're all victims, you might say. They got this horrible wave of nausea. And for perhaps five minutes sitting there, I'd just soon 
drown myself in the shower rather than go what was going to be take place in the next hour. The time came. We walked into the chamber. The little small man jumped up on the table by himself. He was laid down. He was much too small for the length of the gurney, so we had to slide further down. The witnesses came in. He turned and looked at the people, and he said, beautiful faces. And then he whispered, I'm innocent. I thought, here you've told me not half an hour ago you helped murder G. Stanley. Then he said, okay, warden, roll him. He gasped just a little, more like a snore. He died very quickly. That may not be justice. But some people would say that had to end that way. But the problem is, in a lot of our hearts and minds and thoughts, it's never going to end. The system stinks, and it's not fair. I felt like if God put me there, he, he'll tell me when to leave. He didn't tell me to leave. I had been visiting those inmates over in our hospital, you know, and I could minister to them. You know, I'm not in favor of cancer, but I'm going to stay with the convict when he dies, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is. So to my mind, I felt like that this was another, another way that people are going to end their life. And I may be opposed to that, but I am not going to let them die alone. I noticed through the glass window. As the years went by, the number of executions in Texas increased, and Carol Pickett's ministry of presence started to take a toll on him. And so, on August 15, 1995, he ministered to his last condemned man, Vernon Sadie White. And Vernon turned his head, looked at me, and without saying out loud, but with his lips, he said, thank you. Thank you. There were 98 executions in the 15 years Carol Pickett was chaplain at the Walls Unit. In the following 15 years, there were 348. The original death row could only handle a maximum of seven condemned men. 308 men now await execution in Texas. But California leads the nation with 724 inmates on death row as of April of this year. 95 executions. 95 killings by the state in the name of the state. Some pretty bad guys, some fellows who had been completely changed, some who didn't even know where they were, and many, many who did not fulfill the law as it states. And one of the questions that must be asked, does he constitute a future danger? Most of the men I was with, I would have taken home with me and not been afraid. Ministry of Presence was produced by Matt Holtzman for Unfictional on KCRW. 
Proposition 34, a bill that would have ended the death penalty in Texas, failed in 2012. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. This episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Annie Kostakis. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by the Logan Theater in Chicago's Logan Square. On October 26th, the Logan celebrates the season with a showing of It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Learn more at thelogantheater.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Support for ReSound also comes from Smoke Barbecue, serving authentic, slow-smoked barbecue and homemade sides all year round. Smoke also caters events of all types, including holiday parties and corporate events. Learn more at smokebarbecue.com. That's S-M-O-Q-U-E-B-B-Q.com. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs>